0: Hey, this is Benjamin Boyce and welcome to the Quarantine Conversation series that is just a continuation of my normal series of my normal life, but because we have a theme and an alliteration, we gotta take advantage of it. We just have to do that. That's my MO. Today's guest is Colin Wright, who is a scientist who has been studying social insects and for the last year and some months has been speaking about biological sex on Twitter, which has, you know, got him a lot of attention because for some reason that's a very hot topic nowadays. In this interview, Colin speaks to me about a recent Wall Street Journal article that he published along with Dr. Emma Hilton about the need to identify the reality of biological sex and how denying that reality actually has a bunch of consequences. And as you might imagine, he suffered some consequences for publishing such an audacious article in a national media outlet. So we talk about that. We also talk about his changing attitude towards academia and how somebody like him, along with somebody like a bunch of other people, People who want to pursue certain questions or who are investigating or invested in investigating reality don't necessarily fit anymore within academia. And there are certain mechanisms within academia that are straining these people from it, both post facto and even pre facto, before the fact and after the fact. So this is a great conversation. Colin's a great guy, and he's going to be moving from the East to the West. So wish him luck in that endeavor. Here's Colin Wright. What do we want to talk about? We just want to like rap about biology.
1: I guess we could, yeah. Just stuff that's been going on. I guess the, I mean, I had the Wall Street Journal article. I had the, the canceling attempt. <laughs> I had, yeah, um, just general goings on. I guess
0: that wasn't. I, I don't know. What I you think it was the New York Times article.
1: Uh, it was Wall Street Journal, the one I did. Okay. Yeah.
0: And how's the reaction to that, broadly speaking?
1: It's it's hard to even say in one word because at first it was extremely positive. Uh, and then and I was I was shocked. I was like, wow, this is like ninety, ninety-five, ninety-eight percent positive. And then you can really see how Twitter's sort of in these different bubbles, because some one person a couple of days later retweeted it and then it just sort of once it caught some structure into the woke Twitter, it just took off. And all of a sudden I was just receiving just a fire hose of hate. <laughs> and then <laughs> so I was, I was just blocking and muting people like crazy. It's like, where is this coming from? Like somebody quote tweeted me somewhere. Uh, and then that sort of died down and then it was fine again. And then again, like, a few, just a few weeks ago, it, someone quote tweeted me again. And I was, again, I was getting tons of, tons of hate again. So it's really, it came in waves. So overall, it's hard to yeah. say how the... It was pretty balanced, I think, at the end uh, of the praise and hate for it. But uh, it was definitely a wild ride, for sure.
0: The The problem with social media is that it, it blows out of all proportion the, I guess, not the strength of the argument, but the, the strength of the people behind the argument. Like, when you have these crazy statements that get 30,000, 140,000 likes on them... Like there was that weird statement, I'm going to misquote it, but like yesterday or the other day before, somebody made a weird statement about how the the landlord doesn't provide you anything. It's the architect who built the house that that is yes. providing you the house. And it, like it, it doesn't make any actual sense what they're saying, but because it, it punches into some drive for free rent that all of us have a little bit of, you know, it goes wildly out of proportion. So whenever there's a topic where people are specifically conditioned to have a certain response to it um, within these different pockets, then you can't really tell how strong that response is to your specific argument or your specific mm-hmm. point, so much as the, their condition to anything that yeah. lands within like an area. Yeah, and it was definitely
1: it was definitely evident with my piece with just the canned responses. I had hundreds of responses that were essentially just the same or linked to the same article that talks about... Gender identity instead of biological sex, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, failure to even engage in points, just pointing out that you know, die transphobe is like probably the most typical message I got for the entire <laughs> the entire time. Is,
0: is so, do you think die has like a special like acronymic meaning that could be like construed <laughs> as good for you, like digest <laughs> uh, enzymes?
1: One can hope. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I definitely reported a lot of people over okay. the past month or so well yeah just because i know just not because i particularly am actually afraid that someone's gonna knock on my door and her and harass me in person or attempt anything but you know it's just there should be i guess some consequences for a a death threat on twitter so i didn't hear back from twitter that they've even closed any of those cases but you know yeah yeah, i just just a quick report uh,
0: off the top of your head uh, what's some of the criticisms that that stuck 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 with you or or like a moment like where you, you realized like there was more depth to the topic or the discussion that you had previously missed after writing that article?
1: You know, I can, I can honestly say that I have yet to read anything that really engaged with our article. The pieces that sort of ostensibly made an attempt to do that, they would begin by talking loosely about biological sex and there'd just be like a sentence in there that would sort of pivot. And then who would be talking about gender and then the rest of the piece would be about gender. And then they would just be talking completely past me at that point. Mm. Um, And so I've Mm. yet to actually engage with someone who's, I thought made any point that really landed in any big way. Mm. Um, And so I got still me and Emma are still waiting for, Something we can actually dig in teeth, our, our teeth into. We're really waiting and hoping to have to make this just be a dialogue. We don't want it to just be, you know, a volley. We did our best not to be hyperbolic and, and encouraging uh, some sort of exchange of ideas here. Um, so hopefully, there's someone's writing something. Maybe it'll be forthcoming. That's sort of a, a measured response that we could then respond to. That'd be that'd be ideal for for us anyway, because we don't want to just cast things out and then cut line and then, you know, move yeah. on. Um, we'd like it, we'd like it to start a conversation. And that we think that getting a piece in such a high profile place as the Wall Street Journal, this is one of the first pieces I think that really made it into such a big newspaper that is, has really has the potential to start uh, a much larger conversation. Whereas before these conversations were happening and, you know, on Quillette and other smaller magazines and personal blogs. Um, but it was the first, I guess, mainstream, uh, article specifically dealing with that.
0: For the audience members who haven't uh, read your article yet, and I will link it in the description, could you give us an overview of the the basic points that you were making or the the ground you were staking?
1: Yeah. So there have been a lot of articles that have been published in Nature, um, Scientific American, The New York Times, that basically make some sort of argument or hint at the fact that biological sex is either a spectrum or it's a social construct entirely, that there's no objective things that we can call male or female, Um, or they just cast us into into a lot of doubt. They just kind of make it kind of murky and say, oh, it's just really, really complex. Um, No one really knows what's going on here. And so me and and Emma Hilton, uh, Dr. Emma Hilton, she's the co-author on the article with me, um, we just think that there's a lot of... um, sort of fuzzy thinking in that realm uh, and there's a lot of consequences that are that flow from people denying biological sex is a real thing. Um, and so we basically point out the typical argument that's made by these these articles and it's all very similar. It usually um, starts out with um, discussing biological sex and it, it, it digs into intersex conditions. As sort of this fuzzy boundary between male and female, and it suggests that since some individuals have, you know, sort of a maybe a mixture of male and female sex organs, or in, incomplete development in some areas, or chromosomal differences here and there, uh, that somehow this calls into question the actual categories of male and female uh, themselves. And so we just point out that, you know, while intersex conditions are real and very rare, and it may be the fact that some very few individuals, some, you know, less than 0.02% of individuals uh, are, maybe can be considered sexually ambiguous. That's just not the case for basically 4,999 out of 5,000 individuals where they're unambiguously male or female. We also point out the fact that most People, uh, trans individuals who are using these intersex arguments, they are not intersex themselves. Most trans people are unambiguously male or female, they fall into one of those two clear categories. And so pointing to intersex conditions isn't uh, in any way giving them the ability to actually, you know, nothing about that calls their sex into question. Um, And then we sort of went into a few areas where the denial of biological sex uh, is um, harmful uh, to um, both women, the LGB uh, community, and then also children. So women, because uh, they, you know, they fought hard for their sex-based rights, they uh, have their own separate sports leagues, their own separate prisons, um, etc. cetera, uh, that if we just let people self-ID, then it's gonna be basically impossible to enforce these sex-based rights, these laws that have been made, uh, made on the, uh, the basis of sex differences. Um, for the LGB community, there's been a lot of, you know, we've I've heard you talk about the cotton ceiling and for people who don't know, that's just basically, um, the statement that it's somehow transphobic if say a lesbian would refuse to date a, uh, a trans woman simply because they have a penis, you know, they have complete male uh, anatomy because, uh they kind of perceive, homosexuality not as being same-sex attracted, but as same gender identity attracted. And so if a trans or a trans woman, or sorry, if a lesbian were to say that she wasn't interested in dating a trans woman because they're male and they have a penis, then they're all of a sudden transphobic. Um, and this, this isn't just how science looks at sexuality, too. Some people may be attracted to individuals based on their identity or something, even though that's a trait that you can't physically see. It's just a brain state. Um, this is just generally not how we understand sexual attraction to be working. It's, it's based on if they're perceived to be male or female. Um, and then for children, we looked at the harms of sort of what, what does it mean if we if we blur the lines of, of biological sex? And we think that this could lead people, um, children, to sort of be confused possibly about uh, what their gender non-conforming behavior, mannerisms, personality traits might sort of mean uh, about how they think about their biological sex. So if you're a really tomboyish girl, uh, could this be, lead you to be maybe confused about, um, you know, if you're maybe just a a boy trapped in a girl's body. Uh, We use references to Lisa Littman's paper on rapid onset gender dysphoria um, to sort of bolster that. But that's sort of broadly um, Mm. what our article covered. Just those, Points and then it sort of chastised a lot of the the outlets like the New York Times and especially the scientific journal Nature for for perpetuating this and it's just we just think it's extremely irresponsible for mm. it's, you know these scientific organizations that are, we're supposed to be able to trust for accurate information uh, and they're just sort of pandering politically we think to this one uh, this certain ideology that is just wants everyone to throw up their hands and just. Uh, not acknowledge the the fact that most people's sex is pretty unambiguous, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a real thing, and we we do know what biological sex is. You know, we're not we're not that confused about it. There's edge cases, and we can talk about those, but by and large, we know what biological sex
0: is. It's sex amazing is. that science has penetrated the secrets of the atom, and in the process, forgotten how to tell the sexes apart. That's oh, I know. Yeah.
1: yeah, I, mean, I would. Where were these people? five ten years ago who mm. who were biologists you know i've, I've argued with a, a phd biologist recently who was claiming that they had expertise in sex development and they're trying to say that neurons are somehow part of the definition of biological sex mm-hmm. you know, you know if, if you were to change the neurons and leave your you know primary sex traits your genitals and uh gonads in place like that's not going to change your sex no matter what type of brain state you happen to have and I just can't believe I have these conversations with people they seem well, to... if not you're really-
0: having these conversations, why do you think they're so invested into it? What, do you have any insight into why they're trying to obfuscate something that's pretty obvious?
1: I mean, it's hard to get over the idea that it's sort of an ideological component um, mm-hmm. driving some of these. Uh, this, I mean, it seems nice in a way just to maybe... Just sort of throw your hands up a little bit and say that sex is really complex to maybe ease the dysphoria that people might be having if, with their biological sex, and you know that way no one can actually tell them, you know, to tell a trans person that they're not the sex that they might identify as. Mm. And you know, it's, it's my position and and Emma's too that we're we're not the types that are going to go out there and we're not looking to find trans people and tell them that like, oh, you're not really the sex you claim you are. Like that's this is so not where we're coming from. Like, I'm more than happy to use people's pronouns uh, that they they wish uh, for us to use. Um, but it's just when when things go a little further and they start trying to change laws, and um, mm-hmm. then that's sort of there needs to be an adult in the room, to some degree, to say like, wait a minute, like we can't we can't make this into law. Like this is this is a this is something we might socially accept. Um, like I'm willing to socially accept a trans woman as a woman, and you know I'm not going to try to make them. Feel uncomfortable in any way, but once once we start actually believing these things, um, that's where I think people need to start putting their foot down and drawing a line. And I just see a lot of scientists, biologists who aren't willing to to stand up to that line, who are just overtly crossing it.
0: Um, and it was either it, before or after your article published that I believe who, somebody came after you and, and uh, said something not even mean on Twitter, but Kind of tried to rally a mob to get you not hired, right? They tried to ca- pre-cancel your career as a yeah. scientist, right? Yeah, Actually,
1: I think that was after the article had been published. That was a guy named Kevin Bird, who's just um, very much one of those activist types, and that was on re- a response to a tweet that I did. That was um, I was on the in Sweden. I think there was a hundred and fifth, a fifteen hundred percent increase in the number of adolescents that were reporting to gender clinics mm-hmm. and so my tweet was I, I quoted a bit from the article and then my the only thing i wrote so my cont- contribution to the tweet was just i said two words social contagion which was sort of tipping the hat to lisa Littman's paper which had a whole thing on social contagion yeah. uh, theory and this is you know it's looking back on it like i can see how if people don't know social contagion theory that it's actually an academic uh, field that people are studying that it could, people could misinterpret what that means. And it got retweeted by like Ann Coulter to 2 million people. And so that yeah, so it just, it just took off and then people were just (laughs) quote tweeting it. And then all of a sudden the context was just like taken out of my mouth from me. And so I ended up deleting it. I don't know if that was a good decision or not, but I just didn't want this tweet without my context just to be, you know, done with as people uh, would like to do. Um, And you know, I do think social contagion, which is basically this, uh, the fact that social factors could be playing a role. You know, we see more people, uh, adolescents coming out as trans if they're in their friend circle, uh, has a lot of individuals that are also trans. So there's some some sort of social component, some sort of trendiness, I suppose, um, to to this. Now, I'm not saying this is the only thing that could be contributing to mm-hmm. to people that are, you know, the adolescents coming out as trans. The... It could also be partially what a lot of the trans uh, activists like to say it is, and that's you know, increased social acceptance of trans identities, and that could be playing a role too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My point was that, uh, and after the subsequent sort of back and forth of people, I think we need to explore all of these potential explanations, mm-hmm. uh, and the consensus from sort of the trans rights activist part was that, no, you can't look at the social contagion hypothesis because people in the past had uh, said that homosexuality was a social contagion and that, you know, there's there's this history behind using that word or saying it was contagious to some degree. Uh, And then, you know, I'd point out the fact that, well, let's say maybe if there was a component, let's say if people being gay did sort of run in circles, well, what are the consequences of that, of it maybe being trendy? I don't think it is, but... The consequences of that would be, oh, no, you maybe uh, you kissed someone of the same sex and you found out that, you know, you weren't really that interested and like, you know, no harm done. Like, there's no harm mm-hmm. to anybody experimenting, you know, sexually that way. Um, whereas there is there are potential harms with individuals um, being convinced that they're trans when they might not be, um, because this is often sort of puts people down a pathway to more invasive Treatments such as puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, or irreversible surgeries, you know, permanent changes in your voice, Uh, and these are things that um, I think we should we should be worried about to some degree. So I I don't think you can quite compare saying that you know the the social contagion uh, type thing to homosexuals and the trans situation are identical. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's it's dangerous not to explore. Any potential social factors that could be playing a well, role, especially when there's some, you know, suggestive evidence that it could be there. Uh, mm-hmm. More studies need to be done on it, but um, it's my understanding. Well, it's interesting
0: because maybe I'm simplifying things too much, but it was the the move that may, the move of construing gender as a social construct that was, in some part, I would think, is what led us to where we are now, where you can just create whatever gender you want to be. If, if that's the case, then it seems a little defensive for them not to want to discuss the social impacts of how this stuff is going around. If it's a social construct, but not a social contagion, um, like you have to, you can't have one and not the other.
1: One of their main criticisms too, they, they criticize Lisa Lipman's study because they, they say that she only interviewed parents and didn't interview the children themselves. Mm-hmm. Um which you know it's a that's a valid criticism. I mean, I don't think it's worth nothing. I think it's still publishable data. Um mm-hmm. but then then now Lisa Lippmann is doing uh she launched another study that was trying to ask the children themselves a big survey, and then that survey was bombarded by trans activists submitting false stuff and just to just to swamp the survey and make it completely unusable,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which goes against their narrative that. You know they were actually interested in the real evidence from the this actual group that they're interested in and so i know now that uh lisa levin's trying to launch it again but it has a lot more different uh different ways she's going about it where it wouldn't be susceptible to this bombardment by activists trying just to shut her, her whole research system down so mm-hmm. what they say in one context doesn't really match their actions you know if they're actually interested in the data they say they're interested in or criticizing her on the grounds that she only interviewed parents and not children. If that was the issue, then you know, why are they bombarding her uh, mm-hmm. new study that does exactly what they say they want to be done? Um, so yeah, the, the, the policing is, is pretty intense. For sure. Do
0: you have, because your, your research has to do with social insects, have you seen any social contagion? I think we've explored that a little bit in our first <laughs> interview. But do you see, are are you aware of in the animal kingdom certain sorts of uh, social patterns that give rise to group uh, dynamics that could be detrimental or positive for the group?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what species of monkey. They might be in some sort of baboons. And you do see it in other other species as well. But you'll get, um, like, one example is, uh, like, food washing behavior. I think there's a monkey that um, started just like washing their food in a, in a stream. And this actually sort of helped it by, you know, cleaning the food before they ate it. And then you can, you can see how other monkeys observed them do. And they started washing their food too. And now all the monkeys in these tribes are, are washing their food in certain ways. Um, So you can see how just sort of these trends, behavioral trends, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I guess you could call sort of like the, almost like a meme or some sort of like cultural evolution takes place. Uh, within uh, animal society as, as well. Um I'm I'm not aware of any of it taking place in sort of you know social insects and things. It's usually gonna be in probably more in the primates and sort of mammals that have more of a um, you know the, the brains that are capable of that type genetics. of yes. that type of learning and, and stuff. But yeah you definitely see that sort of social contagion and um,
0: has this sort of inspired you to, to- Maybe change the purview of your own research, like the last, I guess, six months or so. Have
1: you yeah, researched? so I have been getting very interested in looking at human sort of personality, behavioral differences, collective behavioral differences of humans. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to be able to do that because um, you know, yeah. moving back yeah. to California, my my contract here at Penn State is uh, is up basically, and so I've had a, a lot of difficulty securing any sort of uh, academic job afterwards. I've applied to maybe a hundred positions and got about three phone interviews and that's about as far as it went. Um, so I'll still be applying to some academic positions, but um, unfortunately I've, I've heard back from a few after my Wall Street Journal article who, who, who expressed, there were there chairs of some biology departments and they expressed interest in potentially hire me on as a faculty because they liked my writing and they liked the way I engage with people. But then they both said, which was pretty astonishing to me, and since I've talked to other academics, they're just sort of blown away, that they said that even though they'd be interested in recruiting me, that they think the HR department would probably almost certainly block the hiring just based on my social media, just because it would be sort of a liability. Uh, they didn't say it was for sure, but they said they were, like, they were near certain that it would be very tough, which... And other, other people I've talked to, they said it was very, that that really, it shocked them because in their experience, HR was only there after the fact. Once a legal, if there were something, some legal issue happened while you were a faculty member, then HR would come in. But this is sort of, there might be some shift now to having HR come in before the hiring even takes place. Mm. Uh, so it's it's looking like I might be making an exit <laughs> from academia, which isn't, Um, you know, the most ideal situation. But I think it's maybe the right move for me just because I don't think I'll have a lot of control over the hiring committees. And I think I could probably publish my butt off the next year or, or more. And I'm not sure how much of an impact that would have. I mean, I already have close to 30 papers published. And, you know, I only got three interviews out of 100 applications. And what are you know, I could conceivably maybe get three or four good papers a year and is that going to give me all those interviews mm-hmm. uh, and even if I do get them am I going to be blocked at the end by um, some some HR department or something so I'm ca- sort of in a process of taking control over my, my future again because mm-hmm. I, I just feel that I'm at a point of diminishing returns where I could I could invest as much as I could into publishing and being the best scientist I could but I don't know if there'd be a whole lot of payoff to that because I don't think that might actually translate into a job. Uh, And so I'm sort of shifting where I'm going to be refocusing on things that I think I might have more control over in the future, which unfortunately would be outside of academia, but I'll still be talking about academic topics and that's, I don't know. Like
0: making surfboards.
1: (laughs) No. So right now my plan is I'm moving back to California. My, my family's house is in full quarantine. So I'm gonna be moving back there. I'm gonna be spending uh, two weeks in their game room to be quarantined from them. <laughs> then uh, um, my, my current objective right now is to, to write a book and then um, sort of write out the recession and pandemic for the next several months to a year uh, and hopefully release the book and then emerge afterwards uh, looking for more sort of scientific journalist positions um, I'm also looking to start like a, an online fitness and nutrition coaching sort of enterprise. Okay. So yeah, lots of different areas I'm going in, but, uh, I don't think a lot will change from the perspective of people who are like on, on Twitter. So I'll still be writing about the same stuff I've been talking about. Uh, I'll just, what? the only thing that changes my, I'm not probably not going to be an academic scientist anymore. So
0: what yeah. about, um, are you able to talk about what your book might be about? Do you have a,
1: so, yeah, it's, it's probably. So, I'm still working on just the full outline of it right now. Um, uh, I've been chatting with a literary agent who someone put me in contact with. Um, it's broadly going to cover a lot of the stuff that I've, I've written in my New Evolution Deniers Quillette piece, in my Wall Street Journal. It'll probably be a historical section that looks at sort of the sociobiology debates in the 70s and the um, sort of the, the Gould. Um, postmodern type stuff that went on in the the 80s and uh, in in response to the sociobiology and the science wars in the 90s and maybe a little bit of uh, creationism, intelligent design, new atheism stuff in the mid to late 2000s. And then sort of, so just as like a context for the sort of grievance studies type thing. And then I plan on sort of looking at, this probably could change by the time I I come out with it, but um, looking at how, the univariate fallacy, I had a thread on, on that, which basically is, um, is is the claim that because certain, like no single trait can absolutely define differences between two groups, that those two groups are social constructs and don't exist. Uh, I'll be using, I'll be kind of going over what I went over in my thread on the topic, um, looking at uh, sex differences in both, you know, this biological sex itself, uh, sex differences in neuroanatomy and personality. Uh, And then um, probably looking at just sort of human population uh, diversity type stuff, too. um, Sort of the claims that, like, you know, we don't don't like like to use the word race so so loaded, but, you know, the idea we can identify certain population differences based on correlated genes, um, not linking it to any other types of traits, just saying that, like, there are, you know, identifiable groups that are based on, you know, uh, relatedness in certain areas and which kind of goes against this um, current narrative that there's this, this doesn't exist uh, at all that we can't talk about population differences
0: um, is the, Do you have an idea about like the, the history the, the coeval history of science and science denialism is that that kind of that seems like what you're talking about like there's always yeah. attending to science is always this kind of uh, narrative that tries to bend it to its will and, and
1: yeah, so exactly. It's so it's it takes it seems to kind of go back and forth between the sort of more I was going to say left-wing even though I don't know what that means anymore, but sort of the left-wing postmodern type science denialists, people or just reality denial in general. Hmm. And then you have it coming from sort of the evangelical Christian right that might come especially when they're coming after, you know, evolution things like that. Yeah. Um and so it's going to be looking at sort of the attacks to science from both the left and right. And so the, now the current situation we're in is we're back with the whole uh, sort of postmodern attack, um, which has sort of entrenched itself within within the academy now. So it's it's much harder to root out than uh, say creationism or intelligent design proponents because they're not they don't really have a foothold inside academia at all. So they're just they can kind of just be ignored and they don't have exert a lot of influence. But now with their, you know, the, they're inside the departments have uh, compared it to sort of like, it's almost like an invasion of like the body snatcher situation where, you know, I, I look around, they all seem like very competent scientists, but then you talk to them like, do you know what biological sex is? And they'll just like, friend, <laughs> you, they just, you know, they sprout tentacles and this is like, oh my God, you're one of them.
0: So have you thought about like a list of questions to strain out somebody's uh, relationship you, to reality?
1: That'd be good to have. It'd be like the thing, you know, the scene where they're like putting the pin in the blood, trying to go by and see which one's reacts to it. There's got to be something like that for, uh, like an allergy test
0: for reality. Yeah,
1: (laughs) uh, something like that. (laughs) It's like you've tested positive for reality denial. So,
0: well, what's uh, what's something about science that you kind find yourself denying? Do you think like any human beings? fully capable of not denying reality? Is there something that like you find yourself like having a hard time with, uh, like some theory or some discipline?
1: It's hard to say. I'm sure like I don't want to put across and say that, you know, I'm right about everything. Um, (laughs) I I try to, I do my best to sort of curate every belief I have where I'm, I'm perfectly fine of remaining agnostic to things unless I'm pretty sure that like something has met the threshold of evidence but I'm sure there's things that, like, I'm I'm not convinced on. Like, I think – I don't know how much this could be considered biology, but I'm just – I very have a hard time believing in, in things like hypnosis or things like that. Even though I, I've, very intelligent people tell me that it's a real thing and that, you know, you can be on stage and you can act like, you know, uh, you're talking to your mother when it's not. It's like, is this real? I, I still – it's very – like, there's, there's, like, a theatrical version of hypnosis where, you know, it's just like, and you're all hypnotized, everyone faints. But then I guess there's a more subtle kind that people are willing to defend. I still have a hard time believing that. Like I just, I would, I don't know. It's just, well, I don't this know is that, because
0: of your staunch free willism, uh, self determination uh, no, I mean,
1: I'm, I'm open to, to suggestion. It just seems, I don't know, there just seems to be sort of like a, a magical hocus-pocus component to, like, a hypnosis on on that level where you can get people to you know like on the count of three you'll snap out of it maybe it's real i don't know um i'm very <laughs> i'm very skeptical of it uh, i don't know if that's would put me in reality denial uh territory enough but I'm, I'm willing to accept it could be
0: real i'm not yeah you to deny it but uh so there's yeah. places where you can feel your skepticism turning up
1: yeah i suppose i mean I would, i'd have to have people ask me on things for me to okay yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. I'm I, I'm not totally aware of my own blind spots. I guess it's hard for me to out yeah, myself the, what I'm <laughs> what I'm in denial about that's true. Um, what is
0: the what is the Twitter um, like your experience on Twitter, which has been a rocky road for you, but like I guess pretty fun too. It's a lot of fireworks, right? It's pretty explosive <laughs> up down. Is, yeah. Has that um, as a platform as a scientist interacting with the uh, with the public? How how has that shaped you? It's been it's been wild. It's
1: it's been sort of a major double edged sword because in one in one instance, you know, I I, I live by myself I'm in the middle of Penn, rural Pennsylvania, so I don't not a lot of interactions, and especially now in the whole shutdown, it can be uh, you know there's, there's not a whole lot of social interactions going on, and so and even if I had social interactions, most of the people I know are 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 pretty either a political they don't like to talk about sort of the the centrist IDW type topics that I might be interested in, in exploring. Um, and so Twitter's has been a way where I can really find the people who I want to talk about with these things, like you know, you and the Beau Weinguards of the world, and the Lead Justums, and th- those types of people who are just you know, intelligent people who are willing to speak their mind, who aren't gonna uh, you know, uh, paint the roses for me. They're just they're gonna tell me you know, like it is. They're everyone mm-hmm. is gonna be is totally willing to be the single only one in the room standing up against a you know, a, a, a consensus that they disagree with. Um, and so th- those are the types of people I like to, to talk to. Uh, so I've been able to find those people and I've made a lot of great friendships that way. But then also, yeah, I mean, the hate's been intense <laughs> at many times. Uh, and I've had to sort of adapt in real time. I've never had to deal with anything like that before. And for a while I thought that, you know, it's it's not it doesn't get to me at all. Like, you know, it's okay if people call me a bigot here and there or a Nazi or whatever. I think for a little while it did sort of get to me and I, I think I was feeling myself sort of slip and getting a little depressed. Mm. And so I sort of distanced myself a little bit and I would I'd start blocking people more just because, you know, if, if the first thing you're coming out with me is just like, you know, die transphobe or just just calling me a name, do I really need to ever interact you with you again <laughs> on Twitter? Probably not. So I'm trying to Uh, to take my time and not check my um, mentions quite as much. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's especially since the wall street journal article. Yeah. uh, There was, there was something that happened between 15,000 subscribers and 20 that just made the experience uh, so much different. It's just, I don't know what it is. It's just in a negative way or do you feel disconnected uh, from, I guess it's just more like every, there's just so much swarming going on to everything that gets posted. Like, yeah. Um, whereas I, I mentioned I, Zuby had like a, a you know, Zuby music he had a thread where he talked about the different experience that you have on Twitter when you have like 10k 20k you know 50,000 followers 100,000 and uh, one of the things I, I mentioned on there was it seems like when you reach a certain number of Twitter followers people are just much less willing to treat you as a human they're more, they're more like to treat you as someone that needs to be just taken down
0: yeah you become a brand I guess you become an object
1: yeah my my Twitter experience when I had maybe you know under 10,000 maybe even when I was at 2,000 tweets I could could tweet things and you know I would get good feedback from I wasn't reaching a massive audience but now it gets to the point where like there's people who are just gonna go at me 100% and not give me the least charitable interpretation of anything I'm saying and it's just and they're gonna tweet it out to their you know Bazillion followers who are just going to all come after me. So it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely, I have to adapt constantly to how, uh, how I interact with, with have whatever. you been
0: interacting with the Corona conversation?
1: I've That's only okay. really been paying attention. Like I've been reading experts on it, but I'm, I'm not saying, any, I don't know anything about it. So I'm, okay. I, I really hope that no one would listen to anything I have to say about it <laughs> because I don't want people I shouldn't be listened to. Like no one should listen to me. So well, how just... are
0: you adapting to uh quarantine then or lockdown?
1: Oh, you know, it's, I've worked from home a lot before during this while I've been here because I've a lot of the times if I'm not in the lab doing an active experiment, I can just write um, from home. So it's not too bad. It is sort of, you know, now that I, I really can't leave or if I, you know, only if I absolutely need to, it's, it's a little different than voluntary staying inside. Um, but it's, it's not too bad. Um, I've had to, it's, I guess it hasn't been complete quarantine since I'm selling everything that I've had some people have to have to come over just to, you know, take away my desk and things like that. But we still try to do the social (laughs) distance.
0: Well, the couch is six foot, right? So you can, yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. It's
1: been been interesting. Yeah. And it's going to be even more bizarre because I'll be driving across the entire country
0: in the middle of the whole pandemic. So Hmm. we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Probably get gas and live off of Twinkies and Cheetos, and
1: <laughs> I hate driving across. I've done it. This will be the fourth time in the last six years I've driven completely across the country. So
0: you're gonna Ooh. let that go. You're gonna let let that be a part of your past after this one, or you, you, there's no telling. I guess
1: there's yeah, you know, there's no telling. Uh, hopefully, if if the other if the types of jobs that I'm applying for, hopefully they're more like online based, where I could potentially do them from anywhere. Mm-hmm. That would be so ideal because you know, the thing I hate the most is having to having to uproot everything and sell everything and you know fit everything into my Subaru and then you know start somewhere else and then you know try to build a life there again. So mm-hmm. ideally, I'd get I'd be able to choose where I live and I would just I just want to be able to live somewhere for at least ten years at least know where I'm going to be for ten years because every two to three years over the last twelve years I think I think I moved every. Two to three years, mm-hmm. uh, so far since since I can really remember since I left my parents' house when I was, you know, twenty something. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to finding knowing where I'm going to be yeah. and actually be able to put roots down and make mm-hmm. long-lasting friends. So that's that's definitely something. I'm
0: so, interested. are are you going to keep at the sex uh, topic on on Twitter? Or is there another topic that you think that? you're itching for because you're um, in the thick of things with that i wonder do you yeah. do you think that there will be any way for it to go forward you just kind of have to wait for the sea change or somebody to come up with a good argument or does it yeah does, does it feel stuck to you does it feel like it's going anywhere
1: it, it feels a little stuck right now for sure um and probably more stuck because i think there's a temporary like unspoken armistice between People now that the coronavirus has taken over like I just mm-hmm. noticed there's much less Twitter activity I'll tweet something that you know I thought would have gotten more popular before like no one's really no one seems to care about any of that stuff going on right now everyone's got I mean, understandably a lot more uh, important things to worry about so um, but it's I mean it's all gonna be waiting there when we get back <laughs> they're, they're not going anywhere uh, I, I would hope that the conversation has improved by then. Um, I, I doubt the conversation is going to improve. I think that we might see like a shift in uh, sort of the the number of people who are speaking out against it because I think it's the more the more sunlight it gets, the more people realize how how kind of crazy some of the sex denial rhetoric is. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, even if the conversation is still, I mean, I don't, I don't see what other points I could be really making. Like I've, it's, I've made my points. I'm just remaking them at this point. Uh, I think they're still important to keep making because obviously uh, they're going to still make their points, and we just need a they need a, people in the public need to see the reasonable opposition to these ideas. So yeah. I'll keep doing that as long as I need to be. Um, but hopefully, we just see like a sort of shift in where the where the power of the conversation um, is currently residing. Which right now it's I think it's on on the other side just by numbers and and outspokenness and and mm-hmm. pure. Um, is how volatile they can be, um, but I think we're seeing a change. I think there's more people that are sort of speaking up about it now, or less less afraid to, because they see other people talking about it. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm optimistic. Yeah, my 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 the interests I've always been in. Like I, I'm sure there will be. I don't know if I'll be doing this in five years because there's always some new thing that comes up. Like I thought I was going to be arguing against creationism, and intelligent design for my entire life. You know, mm-hmm. ten years ago when I. And that was part of the reason why I got into evolutionary biology in the first place because I was I was I mean I'm an atheist and I was I, I was arguing against creationists intelligent design people because you know in the mid 2000s mid late 2000s that was that was the debate there were people trying to get sort of uh, intelligent design textbooks in the classroom or taught alongside evolution and so that was to me the battle that was the where science was under attack from now they're still there but they're much less uh, uh, I guess, outspoken, I never really come across them. They don't appear to be uh, endangering the science classroom right now. Uh, but now the science attack is coming from the other side, and so now that's that's where I'm focused, and who knows where it's gonna come from again. But that's sort of, I just sort of noticed this pattern in my life where like, what am I currently interested in? This basically has to do with where the attack is coming from, hmm. and what, you know, I, what flank do I need to guard at any given time? Uh, so i'm sure that'll that'll probably shift several times uh, throughout my entire life but i'll have
0: have I'll you do. been able to reach creationist and uh, intelligent designistas like in in the previous incarnation of your science battle
1: um you know that was i had a blog back in the day there was not as much youtube going on there, i mean there was a little bit i wasn't involved in that i i was part of a an atheist podcast with a group of people Um, it was called an American atheist and we, we were somewhat popular back in that day, I guess. But, uh, um, I I mean,
0: mean, do atheists atheists. ever don't just speak to their choir? Like, do you ever, have you seen any like actual movement or does it just? Yeah. I mean, I, I, saw people reaching out and attempting to talk to people, um,
1: on the other side, back in the new atheism days. And I see people doing it now. You got like the, I don't know if you know, rationality rules or, Cosmic skeptic, those people. I think they're doing a really great job, and they they're constantly going on radio programs of other uh, creationists and doing live debates. And they're they're very charitable individuals. They're mm-hmm. intellectually honest, and they have really good conversations. I think um, I'm glad that they're out there doing it because I always said that I thought new atheism wasn't so new; it was getting really old. All the mean people in a, you know they're in their 70s and 80s, and you know Dawkins had a stroke, and Dennett could have a heart attack any day. He had one already before. Hitchens is gone and, you know, all those, you know, Sam Harris is still not really doing the atheism thing. He's doing other stuff. And so there were no one was taking their place. <laughs> and I was just like, we need some new blood to keep arguing because, you know, people, I think you need to constantly kind of keep arguing these same points because you, the arguments never won. <laughs> it's, they just sort of go down for a while and they, they, res, they resurge every you know, it's kind of a cyclical basis, so it's good. To what, always,
0: would the, what, what would the point be? Like, what was that? What, Sorry. Are, what, are the, what are the points that that need to constantly be advanced? I mean, just I guess the
1: the standard arguments against, you know, God's existence, or you know, like the moral argument, the arguing against Pascal's wager and the Kalam are mm-hmm. just you know, I think those need to be mm-hmm. sort of ever present. And the second one side just like drops their arms, that's when the other side is gonna you know it's gonna advance their troops a little bit more. So I think that it's always important to sort of maintain the debate as being active and never assume that it's completely been won. Because uh, when you let let your guard down, that's when you know they're
0: mm-hmm. gonna they're gonna see swamp you with their faith. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, have you seen uh, parallels between? creationisms and the gender ideology faction like are there similar moves that are being made or is postmodernism a different beast than than I guess you know old school fundamentalist yeah. evangelical
1: I do see Christians. very similarities you know I, I made this comparison before where in the late uh, 2000s when you were on YouTube the whole like someone completely owns or destroys someone those videos were always like Richard Dawkins destroys creationist. It was always just like the, 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 the creationists and intelligent design people were always sort of the ones that were, you know, getting owned, you know, getting dunked on. And now that's not what I see. Now I see, you know, Ben Shapiro dunks on, you know, these types of like social justice activists, postmodern type grievance studies, people mm-hmm. like that has totally shifted. And I, I do see a very similar, uh, I guess um, I don't want to call it just a zealousness or I I see very similar ways that they're advancing their arguments of being more just emotionally based or just, you know, I don't don't know the Mm. best way to describe it. And I I know James Lindsay had a really great article that was sort of like the postmodern religion. I can't remember the title of it, but it was really long. It was super long, but it did a lot of the parallels Mm. um, uh, between different religions and, you know, how you can interpret some of like the, the critical left's positions as sort of having parallels to the um, sort of modern religious ideas like original sin as, um, you know, having this like white guilt type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's I maybe mean, some of the comparisons might not be direct, but I think there's a lot of comparison. I, I do think the postmodern left is very, is sort of a, a, a religious movement in many, in many ways. Um, have, you not- swarm, uh, have you seen
0: them uh, swarm? Have you seen like fundamentalist creationists swarm their enemies like the social justice advocates do?
1: No, it's there. So, yeah, so I've always said that I, I preferred arguing with creationists and intelligent design proponents because with them, we usually agree on the most basic observations of the state of the world when you look around. Like I can talk to an intelligent design person, and they're gonna, you know, understand that male and female are real things. We uh, they can at least a lot of intelligent design people they'll even look at, you know, they'll accept the fossil record as is, and that life has changed over time. Mm. Uh, and even if a lot of, you know, even if religious people who deny evolution, at least they, you know, they they identify things how they are today. Um, they just usually propose that maybe there's some sort of spiritual magic going on sort of behind the scenes that is explaining these things, but they don't, they don't disagree on what we're looking at. Like we're looking yeah. at something. They just have a different idea of how that came to be. Um, and like, I'll argue with them
0: mm. day and night. That. So, so, so then the present is stable between you two, but the beginnings yeah. and the ends are, are what's in question or what's being argued
1: about. Yeah. They have sort of, they less. have more of like a, a supernatural behind the scenes going on to explain what it is. Yeah. Uh, whereas I'm not usually, I'm not, that doesn't convince me. But when I talk to, or debate some of the, and, and also, sorry, the creationists, they're also not going to call me a bigot or anything like that. You know, they're, they're not, they're not making these types of.
0: They, they, like, every once in a while, they might suggest that you're damned to an eternity of suffering. Yes.
1: Yeah. They might do that. Yeah. yeah Offhandedly. That's,
0: that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. But when
1: I, when I speak to these, like the critical left people, the social justice types, um, postmodern they don't even we don't we can't even agree on the most basic observation like we don't they don't even agree that there are shared facts to to investigate they think the facts you know that the facts aren't shared That male and female aren't real and i don't even know how to begin with some of these people because if we can't even agree on like a phenomena that we need that we're both trying to explain like, they don't even agree that we're seeing the same phenomenon like as, as it is, as we're looking at it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's almost impossible to even begin, I don't know how to begin with some of these people. Um, if we can't just establish that we're looking at something, you know, it's one of like, I just want to give them a piece of paper, like draw what you see. And just so I can like, look at it and just to make sure, like just draw what you see so I can make sure we're seeing the same thing. Uh, because otherwise I, I just, it seems to be almost a level of, um, hmm. uh, I don't even know how to explain it. They're just complete denial. I don't even know how they can be sincere in in their beliefs if if they're starting off denying like, the most basic observations. Yeah, makes any sense.
0: Yeah. Do you, I guess Lindsay and and Pluckrose and and Boghossian have been kind of observing that those people or that, that group, uh, have you had any observations about that, 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 you find useful in the way that you engage with them? Or do you just kind of have to do this emoji and, and then this emoji? And then this <laughs> yeah. Emoji?
1: <laughs> I mean, I try, uh, I guess the, the only t- place I really am able to engage with these people are, are online. I don't, I don't have a lot of people, um, in, in my, my actual, Real life that I'm I'm engaging with, I know after my Wall Street Journal article, um, people in my lab were contacted that a lot of uh, by by diversity committees and students saying that they thought my uh, my essay made them feel unsafe because um, they said it denied the existence of non-binary identities and made you know the fact that it was made by a Penn State employee made them feel unsafe and invalid or something and. I'd be more than happy to, to have a conversation with these people. And, uh, people even suggested like, "Oh, maybe, maybe we could arrange something and I'd be down. I I'd, I'd do worry that I'm just going to show up and it's just going to be, you know, people shouting at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if I could, if it could be, you know, if I knew what I was walking into, it might be a little, I might be more uh, willing to do it. <laughs> we'll see. But, uh,
0: yeah, it's so deeply, uh, well, either, uh, sad or offensive that, the institution itself has been or not even if it's not captured, it capitulates constantly over and over again yeah. that, that the yeah. HR department is not about uh, the HR department's already in charge of letting people in. Basically the HR department is ergo in charge of the conversation within the academy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: I can't, I can't say too much about Penn state. They've, they've actually been really great. They, I haven't had, they have not contacted me in any way to say that I, I need to stop doing what I'm doing. Um, I could have had my contract extended. I decided not to, because it is again, a whole like to. I, I don't think there's, that's a fruitful area for me to go forward on. Mm. Um, but they, they made it clear that I would be, I could be extended and that my article wouldn't influence their decision to fund me that extra year. So they've been, they've been fine. I have, have no problems with Penn state. They've been, they've been great. Um, yeah. So, but it's been other the other universities that have um, the chairs when they've talked to me about potentially getting hired, uh, and and other people I've talked to just on, on Twitter saying like, yeah, they've had that experience too of HR sort of coming in um, beforehand instead of post talk. But uh,
0: you know, you're you're a part of a cohort, and I would include Bo Weingard in this. Now it's looking for something outside of the academy where you guys can still be acad- academicians or academics. Yeah. Academites. And, <laughs> you know, like there, there's a, uh, there's a world of possibility, but there's no safety net out there. I guess there's, there's some people who've made some headway into, you know, like establishing enough little gigs, you know, to, to make a life out there. But
1: mm-hmm. it's kind of a
0: you know, very interesting uh, historical spot that we're, we're in where the uh, academic, uh, the academics that want to be asking the scientists that want to be asking certain questions have to go outside of the academy uh, you yeah. ask
1: those. And it's, it's almost nearly impossible to submit papers to academic journals if you don't have some sort of university affiliation too. Uh, okay. which is something that that's I mean, the main thing that I guess I am sacrificing. Yeah, sacrificing because there I, I, I would I'm in the process of writing sort of a response to the um, the sex redefined nature article because there's been no formal response to that. I'd like to get that out before I my contract expires here at Penn State because I don't think I'd be much less likely to have them even look at it if there's like who's this? I mean, the other person you know has a has a PhD in biology, but like you know they're they're not they don't have an appointment anywhere, and that's just that's the way it is. I don't I don't agree with it. I think anybody should be able to make these arguments if they have a relevant expertise in a certain field. Um, and there, there's a possibility. I've talked to some professors who can uh, potentially have me on as a, they call it a sort of a like a soft appointment at a university where I'm not getting paid anything uh, and I'm not doing any work for them. I just have uh, I just have a title at a university. So if I were to get funding because you need grants need to be funded like through universities so they could I could have you like have grants funded through where so it wouldn't cost them anything to have me on but i would i would still have university affiliation so i'm trying to work out an arrangement like that with some people um Hmm. but one of them even though he's majorly on my side one of my one of my really good friends a professor i won't see where he is (laughs) but uh you know he's he's worried that just having my name attached to his lab even on a soft unpaid appointment could give him a lot of slack (laughs) so yeah so yeah it's it's gonna be interesting i'm not sure how that outside academia thing can go. I, I really hope there can be some change that's able to be happened or at least people being taken seriously who are not in academia. Um, because, I mean, it's just gonna be so easy for people to be like, you know, who are these people? This guy's a, you know, he's got an online fitness and coaching business. So like why should we pay attention to him? Even though, you know, we still have publication records and we were, doing good science until we decided to leave the field. And there's no reason we can't.
0: It's a brilliant move though. They don't have to work to discredit you. If you don't have any credit credentials to begin with, like it's yeah, wonderfully yeah. done. They, they just, they really cinched up that. Yeah. I'm, I'm very
1: not optimistic about the state of academia. And I think social media has played a major role in that. Cause if you think about hmm. how hiring took place before social media for a university, you had you wrote your your papers they were published somewhere um, you applied to a university you submitted your application that had you know had your name and stuff but like when you googled them you know even if, if you talk about even before the you know the internet type of thing which wasn't that long ago uh, you couldn't Google someone and find out what they did you would just see their their CV yeah you might yeah. give them a call and fly them out to do an interview. But on an interview, you can't ask them questions like, you know, what are your views? What are your political views? What are your, you know, things that we all agree is like things we can't, we don't want to ask people on interviews, you know, because you wouldn't ask, like, are you planning to have children? You know, these are things we all agree is are wrong to ask people. And because you just had, the only information you had was their, was their CV. And then, you know, and then when they showed up to the university, you know, how you kind of like them, you know, you're going to, you're going to get more of a diversity of people because, you know, the person you hired, they might be conservative, they might be left-wing, you have no idea. Uh, but with the advent of the internet and social media now, it's weird because we all still agree that these questions cannot be asked during interviews. But then we somehow have no qualms with obtaining that information overtly just by like, oh, I'm just going to Google them and find out all that information that I was not allowed to ask them during an interview I can now find out online. And because people obviously, if you know, if they see someone, you know, if someone's wearing maybe they wore a Trump hat or, if they, you know, they've made a set of political view you disagree with, like that is going to influence people's decision on whether to hire this person, especially if the academy is already pretty left leaning. Mm-hmm. And then so you see this sort of shift towards, you know, people self-selecting individuals who more agree with them politically in their departments, and then it makes it even more skewed to the left, and then it just it just it's forever this left left wing march in the universities. Where now, someone like me, who's now I'm just arguing that biological sex is a real thing, and I consider myself on the left. uh, And even Bo, I mean, he's probably a little more conservative than me on some things, but he's by no means a a, a right winger. Um, Now we're we're too right wing for a lot of departments now uh not worth so, the risk yeah and so it's it's really i, I do worry that they've have been they've been captured and i really i think we would need to move to some to save sort of the university keep it from doing that i think i don't know any way that way to get around it besides something like anonymous applications where you don't even have your papers you just say like i here's a you know your publications would have to be sort of like here's the journal it got accepted and here's the journal's impact factor Here's how many citations I have, uh, you know. Here's my h-index, you know, all the all the things that we that you know should matter for for hiring somebody. But you're going to be less able to hire like the exact type of scientist. You know, like, like we're hiring a plant person or a you know mammal person, but you're not going to know who they are or anything else. Maybe not. Of- I it's better than what we have now, I think.
0: It makes me think of uh, Jonathan Haidt's Truth University, Social Justice University, uh, Christian University talk Mm. that's a few years old now. I'm not sure if I've seen it. It's really, really good. It's a really, really good one. I think it's classic. I think it's classic. But it seems that uh, the American Academy, broadly speaking, hasn't been able to quarantine itself from certain ideas. Like like the, the, the certain ideas have taken over the whole thing, so there's no place left for you know straight honest risky question asking science or or there's less and less room for that um yeah. and because there's there's more and more uh, risk factor um because every every academy has an hr department they're all um hiring their diversity, equity, inclusive excellence officers now, um, which which they're all adopting a stance that our job is to keep the students safe. Our job is to coddle the students. Like like all this this entire set of ideas is not quarantined at all. It's taken over the, the entire – it seems like it's taken over the majority of it and that there's no last bastions of, you know, it doesn't matter. This is the school of hard knocks university, uh, the, the the Academy of Dangerous Ideas um, that we're going to pursue and we're going to shelter, um, we're going to shelter not the feelings but the uh, the ability to, to engage in discourse in a certain way that will lead to truth rather than lead to, uh, I guess, political outcomes. I, yeah.
1: I think it's been a dangerous shift, especially because the administrators are usually more skewed to the left than the faculty in most instances. So now when you put those people, mm at the helm and they're getting deciding, you know, they're they're able to just go against the wishes of the faculty hiring decision. Um, I know you had in, in Berkeley now, like, the diversity statement is used as, like, the first thing in, in the math and physics departments where, like, we're really going to, you know, like, how, how good would have Einstein's diversity statement would have been? Maybe not that good. I can't imagine him caring all that much about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Are we really going to want to force Einstein to incorporate social justice into his research on on the speed of light. Like I just It just seems bizarre that we would have uh, this component as not even just, even just a weighted factor seems yeah. bizarre to me, but as the primary first method that you screen people, where if you score below a four out of six on this, like you know, we're only getting people that are scoring a five or a six on their diversity statements. That is just insane to me. And I had this experience when I was applying. Because I applied to so many universities this last year. In most states, they're, you know, they, they require you to submit like your your CV, your cover letter, um, a teaching philosophy statement, the research statement, and then some of them also wanted like a diversity statement. Just they didn't have, they didn't give you a rubric. They didn't say how they were going to grade them. Just like just submit a diversity statement. And it's like okay, I, I mean, I, I submitted mine and everything like that. But without fail, every time you go, when a, when a university application came on for any, you know, the UC system in California or any, any California university, I was just so exhausted to look at their application process because they want all the same stuff, but then they also, they don't want you just to upload your diversity statement that you've already written that you can just change, another you know, university you're submitting it to. Some of them say, like, you need to read our, 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 like diversity mission document it's a pdf and we need you to write like a two-page document that describes how your research is going to address like these specific things to our our statement and it's just like the chance of anybody getting any academic job they apply for is very low and so you're going to take my entire day to address these points you know, on this, on my application, just so I can submit it where I'm going to have a fraction of a percent of them, I'm never going to even hear back from you. It's like, I just didn't apply to so many California jobs. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's just huh. not applying to some of these jobs because of the bar of entry of, of what you need to do to apply, just the diversity requirements wow. are just out of control. So
0: it, it yeah. seems like uh, that, that, that's another brilliant tactic just a brilliant tactic. There was yeah. a modification that I made of a uh, cliche about the, the, the only, uh, the only way to, uh, for how does it go? In order for evil to triumph, all good men have to do is not show up to countless bureaucratic meetings. Like that's all it takes. So now all you have to do is not apply to these things for it to, to go even further. They They've made the, the, They've weighted it so well. They've done such a great job to, with what end goal? I guess to just continually eat up uh, taxpayer dollars and poop out worthless, I I guess, degrees and and research papers. And yes, yeah.
1: I mean, at at some point, there has to be some sort of mechanism. Chickens coming home to roost thing. I mean, because you don't just water down the the mental output of your department that way and still be as productive and have your reputation still stick around. I mean, there's, mm. I, I just can't imagine any, any other university who's going to just like take the opposite tactic and say, like, no, we just want the best applicant, the, the best applicants. Mm. Like they're just, gonna, they're going to, they're going to kick ass. They're going to destroy in terms of productivity and their discoveries and the Nobel prizes that are being won. Like that's, mm. uh, there's going to be a lag time, but, I just can't imagine places like Berkeley and UCLA who are doing these types of things, Berkeley, especially, I just can't imagine 10 years from now, after we see, after these hiring processes are going and they've, they've changed the, the faces of everyone, their entire, their entire staff. I, I just, I can't see them still hmm. being number one in terms of, of output and how much they're contributing. Um, just given the fact that they, they do have such a high bar of entry, not on, Academics what is what it should be, but the high bar of entry on anything but academics, just how, you know, your diversity, equity, and inclusion statements.
0: So you... You're sacrificing, I guess, credibility, and you might find some workarounds by not going the academic route. Uh, But you could still probably teach online. You can still probably – but you can't give credit online unless maybe you could figure out a deal with another university. So I guess you could probably reassemble outside of the academy with some loss of, I guess, stability, tenure. You just have to give up that if that was ever on the table for somebody in your generation. Um, You could probably cobble together a model – of still doing the same thing, teaching, producing, writing, and, you know, I guess living yeah. on top of that outside of these uh, you know, legacy institutions.
1: Yeah, I'd like to, and I'd like to see, you know, I, I can also imagine sort of more um, open-minded, free speech universities taking on some of these positions in response to some of the things going on. I, I do think there's going to be a shift. I think there has to be at some point um i might have might have missed the boat for that but you know i'd still be willing to to apply to any of those types of universities or um until then i i would like to do some online online teaching i'll I'll maybe try to do some adjunct too here and there not full time but i I do i do love teaching too and that's one uh sad aspect of Mm. potentially leaving academia is that like yeah i won't be able to teach uh teach students and have classes and be a mentor anymore where there are things that I really, really enjoyed doing. Um, so yeah, so I'd like to, I might just sort of try to get that teaching aspect by trying to adjunct, you know, one class per term or a couple terms or something just so I can get get that teaching itch scratched because I, so I really, I really enjoy doing that so much.
0: Yeah. And I guess research, uh, it's going to take a hit too. You can't do field research anymore because you need funding for that, right? Yeah, so
1: that's, that's the main thing. You get a, f- a few years without, you're able to without publishing papers, um, yeah. So I, I'd, I'd be limiting myself to uh, out of like R1 universities, like the major research universities. Um, as long as if I keep doing some teaching, though, I could still apply to um, some liberal arts colleges that are more teaching, are, are completely teaching focused. Mm-hmm. That's still an ideal. Such situ- I, I would, I would instantly take a job at a teaching university if you know to teach full time. That's something I'd love to because I can still, I can teach full time. I could still on the side. Uh, right, if I need to um, but yeah it's, it's going to be an interesting year given the whole depression, recession and everything so I'm not sure how yeah. much hiring is going to be going on but
0: yeah.
1: we'll see how that yeah, turns we'll
0: see out. how it shakes out yeah. well thanks for coming on again I'm glad I got one more f- Pennsylvania interview with you <laughs> yeah.
1: it's about a year since we uh, did the last one, how's, how's yeah. your bursitis doing? I know you talked about I, I have this
0: residual problem. They gave me some hormone, and my body's been aching for like the last month. I have swelling in my joints, and I'm just aching all the time. Kind of a pain in the ass. It's rough. Well, pain Wait. just everywhere. It's just like this diverse, the dispersed pain. I don't, I don't understand. Uh, Maybe I'm not
1: just, from the virus. <laughs> You're good. It's not like No, flu- I,
0: this year has been sh- really shitty with health. I mean, I, I had like a major flu where I just couldn't move for about four days. I was just like totally like locked in. And so uh, I hope I don't have to get the corona, but I don't know how the math works out. Probably have to get it. Maybe I'll get an asymptomatic variant. Yeah.
1: You know, I've been, I've had like a light cough. My voice is a little raspy now just because I've had a, over the last couple of days, I'm just a very light cough. It's a slight stuffy nose, but it hasn't progressed. Then I have not had a temperature, and I've just been like monitoring. I was like, "What's going on?"
0: Huh.
1: But uh, yeah, nothing. Nothing. It's. It's. I think I'm. It was worse yesterday, and I'm feeling pretty good today. I think
0: it's. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, it's. They say that nine out of ten people who present with coronavirus symptoms end up testing negative for it. So, mm-hmm. and it is flu season and cold season. So I think it's just I have a normal,
0: a normal boring cold. Yeah. <laughs> well, moving's going of be. Uh, it's kind of stressful, so you're going to have to just keep yeah, on true. top of that, right? Pop, yeah. pop your Cs and your Ds, and maybe some E vitamins. And yeah, definitely,
1: it's going to be a nuts few weeks here, getting driving across the country. But, uh, when's
0: your when's your uh,
1: departure date? You know, it's there's no set time. It's basically as soon as I'm able to get everything sold, I'm just going to hit the hit the road um, as soon as I possibly can. There's no yeah. point in hanging around any longer than I need to, especially <laughs> if I. If I sell all my furniture, well, I'm going to be quarantined. Um, instead so I have to sit on the floor in the middle of the middle of a room, like I'm not going to, that's just sound miserable. So no, I'm, As soon as everything is gone, I'm gone. <laughs> so if anybody out there wants to buy, uh, this will air much later, but I got fake plants for sale.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Good luck. Sorry. Yeah, just, Thank you. Been
1: enjoying all, your, all your stuff. You've been doing the interviews your sex, gender and transition stuff. It's excellent. I there's so it's been a great,
0: so, met a lot of really great people.
1: You know, part it's of famous. what I'm, what I'm planning on doing in this next year of quarantine is, uh, sort of doing some of my own interviews. There's people I would like to interview as well. You know, just for me, because there's people's brains I'd like to pick. Um, and I think I'd have, I'd be able to probably get some people, uh, on who people might know. Uh, and then, you know, I'll publish it just, uh, on a YouTube channel just because hey why not but i think it'd be interesting to i haven't seen you give many interviews i know you were on megan murphy's interview but a a podcast recently right the yeah and that was that was useful but i'd like to get you on at some point to oh yeah your experience because i mean I, i think you have a treasure trove of of knowledge now having talked to so many uh individuals in your Gender series that you might have a you a very valuable perspective probably. I
0: I have a postmodern mind. You know, I I really do. I I think in terms of narrative. I I my brain my brain relates to facts in a way where they're never stable. Like I can never just remember things. Like like I have to always I can but I can remember people and I can remember narratives and stories and I can I can operate on that postmodern level. So. And and I was going full gun with postmodernism until I saw at Evergreen. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, like, this isn't how, this isn't, you can't replace reality with postmodernism. You can only dance on top of reality with postmodernism. Like, that's the relationship. And there was, like, the pyramid got flipped over. And then it got infected with just raw human tribalistic madness you know like without any structures you just have a bunch of two-year-olds knocking over the tower and you don't have a tower anymore right you don't <laughs> even have any blocks anymore
1: yeah but uh you evergreen stuff and yeah that's all very important work i'm glad you're out there doing it
0: yeah well thank you thank you colin
1: awesome well let's do this again at some point maybe a year from now we'll have a yearly
0: <laughs> our... we'll see what i'm doing well yeah just survive well good luck with your uh your transition across the the continent
1: thank you yeah i'll, I'll probably be tweeting about my my journeys we'll see how it goes
0: i'll keep abreast and i'll, I'll plug everybody i'll plug your uh, twitter in so everybody can follow your adventures your wacky adventures like it, it feels like a stephen king novel you're embarking on like the stands you know
1: it's gonna be so less thrilling than that because i'm gonna be doing 10 hour drives every day probably and there's gonna be no traffic and no people anywhere because it's everyone's quarantined so it'll it's gonna be a nightmare four-day drive oh my god
0: (laughs) you can do it we believe in you i've done it before
1: i'll do it again (laughs) all right well have a good day hope you stay safe You too. uh, keep it up man i'll talk to you
0: later Joe. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.